Hey, this is Dr. Adam Moore. I'm your host and pocket therapist. I'm the mental health professional you can carry with you wherever you go. In this podcast, I offer a mix of scripted episodes about fascinating mental health subjects and unscripted answers to your relationship and mental health questions. Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome again to another round of rapid-fire responses to your questions. These are questions that you have asked, and I'm going to attempt to answer using my therapeutic experience, my education, and my insight, and uh, these are unscripted responses. So let's go with question number one. How do I deal with feeling guilty by association for marrying or staying married to a person with a lot of problems? I think all of us in our relationships, we're constantly evaluating the health of the relationship. If you never evaluate the health of your relationship, then I just, well, I find that fascinating. (laughs) First of all, uh, you either perceive yourself as not uh, having another chance at at any other relationship, so you're not really going to think about it very much, or you feel so confident in the relationship that you're fully committed, you're doing everything that the other person wants and needs, and you're getting everything that, you know, that you want out of the relationship. That's an interesting position to be in. I've never been there. I spend a lot of time evaluating the health of my marriage, and I know my wife does as well. And the way we know that is because we're constantly giving each other feedback about the health of the relationship. So when you look at your relationship and you start to feel guilt that you're staying in a relationship, and I'm assuming this means you perceive the relationship or others perceive the relationship as inherently unhealthy. Why would you stay in a marriage that is so sick? Why would you stay with this person who has so many obvious problems? And the implied message is there must be something wrong with you. And I think generally the implied message uh, on another level is something like, you must not care about yourself enough to really stand up for what matters to you. Or you must feel so desperate for love and affection that you would take it from anyone, even if they really were not treating you well. So I think the real issue here is there is this question about what does it mean about me that I'm staying in a relationship that I perceive or others perceive as unhealthy? If you're feeling guilt, then it must mean that you perceive yourself to be not in alignment with your core values. I'm the kind of person that knows what I want. I'm the kind of person that only accepts the best. I'm the kind of person that can see unhealthy patterns, and I'm not willing to you know, live in that context. And so to stay in a relationship that you know is not good for you, must mean something about you, and I suppose you think it means something bad about you, and therefore you feel guilt. And guilt is interesting because I think guilt is generally contextual to our environment. I don't think most of the time we feel a lot of guilt if we don't think that other people perceive us as unhealthy or problematic in some way. So, The first thing I would do is I would start to pinpoint which people in your life do you feel like you owe this guilt to? So is it your mom or your dad? Is it your siblings? Is it your neighbors or friends? Sometimes it's God, something like that. Where do you feel like this comparison, in theory, an ideal self versus the real self, where do you think this is coming from? 
And uh, so where is that guilt directed? I think that's the, the starting point. So perhaps you feel like, oh, you know what? People that know and love me, my family, they I either think they feel a certain way or they have said to me, wow, you deserve so much better. Why are you in this relationship? And so now I'm feeling like, wow, what's wrong with me? So I think that's the context of this question. So the first thing I want to say about it is I don't think you should be surprised that you would stay in a relationship that is not healthy. The reason for that is because of what we call in economics sunk costs. When we make decisions to invest in a relationship, we invest financially, we invest emotionally, we invest our time, we invest our energy, we invest our hopes and our dreams, our future. We actually make all kinds of various sacrifices of things that we could be doing instead to invest in this relationship. And we begin to see those sunk costs as uh, something we need to sort of make up for. We need to make sure we're earning some benefit from sinking so many costs into the relationship. So to simply walk away, it would be also like gambling. Let's say you're at a roulette table and you're down $1,000. People start to look at that and say, well, I'm down $1,000. I can't just walk away now. I will have lost $1,000. I need to keep betting to see if I can maybe earn that back. Okay. So it's not surprising when human beings are concerned about wasted time, energy, effort, and other resources. I don't think you need to feel bad about yourself. That's just very human. The thing in economics is uh, they say you have to ignore sunk costs. You need to look at every decision as if it's the first time you're making it. So in the marriage context, economics principles would say, Today, look at your marriage and say, would I, for example, would I marry this person today if I were to have have met them 10 minutes ago or three months ago, would I choose to marry them? And you have to ignore any energy or effort or time or money you have put into the relationship so far and you simply make that decision today forward. That's an interesting concept. Now, it kind of breaks down a little bit in relationships because sunk costs are not just sunk costs. There's also attachments. You know, you may have children together. You may have a mortgage together. You may be concerned about how they would react or respond post-divorce. You know, I often say to people, when you divorce someone or when you get divorced, you are going to end up interacting with the absolute worst version of that person because they no longer have to try after the divorce to appease you or to not get in a fight. They don't care anymore. So there are other factors at play when you're thinking about, do I need to stay in this relationship or not? I think if we were all thinking about relationships from a sunk cost perspective and this question of, would I marry you today if I met you? I think most of us have a, you know some bad days in our relationships where we say, nah, There's no way. If I met you today, there's absolutely no way I would marry you. So I don't think that's the perfect methodology for making this decision, okay? Now, I'm kind of answering two different questions at the same time here. One of them is, how do I decide whether I keep uh, committing to or stay? whether I stay in a relationship that is unhealthy or bad? And then the other one is the question that was actually asked, which is, how do I deal with the guilt? So if you know you're going to stay... 
if you know you're going to stay and you're just concerned about the fact that you feel bad, like, man, I, there must be something wrong with me or everyone's going to look at me and think, wow, what a poor, pitiful person for staying. I think you need to get really clear about your values. These are the reasons I'm staying. And there are lots of actually pretty decent reasons to stay in relationships that are not healthy right now. One, it could get better in the future. Two, it actually could get dramatically worse if I were to end the relationship and I have a high enough pain tolerance to deal with things as they are now. I'm trying to buy myself time to make a better decision later when I have access to more information. Okay. Three, I... We're going through a rough patch right now. Things have been better, and they've been better for long enough prior to this particular patch that I actually don't think this is normal. I think this is an anomaly. And so not just I hope things will get better, but I believe based on the uh, historical data I have access to about the relationship that they are likely to get better. Sometimes it is uh, a timing issue. You know, you might know for sure that you just cannot stay in this relationship, but the timing is just not right to be able to end it, and so you you tolerate it. If you're clear with yourself about what your values are, and you know why you're making the decisions that you're making, that should alleviate a lot of the guilt. Even if other people don't understand, or even if you're you can't tell other people, there are times in relationships when you can't be fully honest about what your plans are with family or friends because they just simply won't understand. That's a lonely place to be, but there I've seen it as a therapist that people have circumstances that make it difficult for them to be able to really be open about what's going on and what their plans are. So if you're clear about your values, if you're clear about you know why you're staying and you don't feel like you have to explain yourself to other people, that would help a lot. So if you're feeling a lot of guilt, it probably means you're not clear enough about your values. Now, let's say you're very clear about your values and your behaviors do not line up with your values. Your value is I, I stand up for health and I, I don't, you know, I don't live in abusive relationships or I, whatever, fill in the blank what your values are that would dictate that this is not the kind of relationship I want to stay in or would stay in. Then you have to look more carefully and say, if my behaviors are not lining up with my values, are there hidden values or secondary gains, as we say in therapy, am I getting a secondary benefit from staying in an unhealthy relationship? What might those be? Number one, that I actually am not sure I'm worth loving, and I think this is maybe the best I can get, and I don't want to risk trying another relationship out or going back into the dating pool and finding out that nobody wants me. And so it's safer actually to be in an unhealthy relationship that I think might be actually the best I can get. Okay. That's one reason somebody might stay. Why else might you stay? What's another secondary gain from staying in an unhealthy relationship? You might have better access to resources. I mean, I hate to say this, but there are people who are thinking or saying, out loud. I don't really like my spouse, but financially, it makes much more sense to stay with them than to be on my own. And so it may be simply a resource management decision. I hate to say that. It sounds so mercenary, but that's what people are sometimes saying to me in my therapy appointments. So I know that's what some people are thinking about their relationships. So at the end of the day, you get clear on your values. If you're 
values are still not lining up with your behaviors, look for secondary gains that you might be getting out of staying anyway, even if it doesn't line up with your overt values. And if after all of that, you feel like you're not getting any secondary gains out of it or you can't find any, and your values don't line up with what you're doing, which is staying in the relationship, then my guess is it is probably simply based in either fear or timing. You know that you're eventually going to leave, but you're not certain about the timing, or you're simply afraid of the outcomes. You don't know what to expect. And uh, as I say in another episode, I believe, of this very podcast, you would prefer a painful present than an unpredictable future. So if that's the case, then I think you have to say to yourself, okay, can I tolerate and accept where I am right now? And most likely you can. Well, the future is coming with or without you. No, it'll be coming with you for sure. Uh, The future is coming and change is coming. Change is inevitable. It always happens. You cannot escape change. So I suppose that things will change down the line and that guilt will uh, stick with you until you begin to make different choices. Question number two, how do I communicate with people who don't have communication skills? I don't have good context, of course, for this question. Everyone has communication skills, meaning they're capable, not everyone, but let's say 99.9% of people are capable of communicating. They can speak a language They can use nonverbals. They know how to roll their eyes. They know how to give a thumbs up signal. They know how to cross their arms if they feel annoyed or upset. I'm guessing what you mean by this question is that they don't have the type of communication skills you would like them to have or expect the average person to have. And you have a pattern of communicating that is so frustrating to you that it feels like there's no point in trying. Now, I could spend a whole episode talking about various communication skills and how to implement them, and uh, there are very a, a lot of really common ones that therapists use and even train in therapy. But what I've found is that most people are competent enough that if they have been in a relationship long enough, a basic communication skill that's like off the cuff for the average person is probably one that's not going to work. Somebody will have tried that. By the time you're asking the question, how do I communicate with people who don't have communication skills, you've probably tried everything you can think of. So instead, let's talk about this. I think the first thing you need to do is to actually look at yourself and ask yourself this question. Is there anything about the way I'm communicating that's actually facilitating some of this problematic pattern that we have going on with our communication? Primarily because it's easier to change yourself than it is to change other people. So if you find some things you can change, then you can make a lot more uh, efficient impacts early on in this process if you're making the changes. I'll give you a personal example from my elementary school, junior high, and high school experience. I grew up believing that I was rejected by a lot of my peers through elementary school, junior high, and high school. I believed that I was bullied. I believed that I was not accepted by my peers, that they didn't invite me into the 
not even the popular peer groups, just most of the peer groups. And I had a narrative about my life for a long time that I was this poor kid who was picked on by other kids. As I got older, I began to look more carefully at my growing up experience, and I realized that because I felt different, and I don't know if I was different, but I felt different than other kids, I actually acted different. I treated my peers as if I were different. And in my personal experience, because I felt uncomfortable around peers and I felt like I maybe wasn't going to be accepted, I acted superior to them. That was my way of sort of coping with it. Well, if you don't, if you're not going to like me, then it's probably because I'm so, so much better than you or whatever. I believe now, as an adult looking back, that a lot of the problems I had with peers were happened because I actually drove some of that by showing up to these relationships, acting aloof and offish and better than. So there's some real value in looking at yourself and saying, is there anything about me that might actually be facilitating some of this? That's your first step. Your second step is to look at the competence of the person. Okay, I will often say in therapy, you're running into issues with this other person because of one of two things. Either they are unwilling to change or they are incapable of the change you're expecting. Now, that doesn't mean I believe that they absolutely cannot change, but it is true in my belief system as a change expert that some people are more capable of change than others. And there are some things about people that they simply cannot change. You can't change truly your core neurobiology. You know, you don't get to change how your brain functions. There are things about it that you can affect, but fundamental changes, you know, I think we kind of are who we are. So sometimes we're expecting things out of people that are unreasonable. We look at a person and we say, well, you should be able to function this way. Well, says who? And that's a difficult issue to look at because how can you know whether a person truly is capable? Well, a couple things. One, feedback from others around them. Other people that have had long-term relationships, their close family or friends. Find out whether they function differently in different contexts. And the other thing is you need to look and say, well, let's say you're married to this person. Sometimes marriage is the one context where things don't work, right? People will say, everyone likes me except my family. Well, yeah, nobody else has to deal with you in that particular context. No one else has to deal with how you don't flush the toilet or how you spend too much or how demanding you are about and how clean the house is. Fill in the blank. So you have to look contextually at it. On the one hand, are they like this with many other people? And on the other hand, are you in a very unique relationship with that person where they will only act in a certain way toward you and different with everybody else in the world? So I think a lot of the work that we do when we're dealing with people that uh, we feel like we don't have good communication with is asking ourselves, am I expecting too much of this particular individual? And you know, if you can have some compassion on them for maybe not having the skill set you have, or even the desire that you have to be able to communicate the way you think is optimal, that could shift things. There's an expectations issue here. And if I can reduce the intensity of my expectations, my disappointment immediately reduces as well, interestingly enough. 
Another issue to look at is simply the combination of two personality types. I absolutely believe there are toxic combinations of personality types to where those individuals with other people could have completely normal, healthy conversations. But when they get together, those two personality types are absolutely toxic. They simply cannot coexist because of the way that they perceive the world, the way that they perceive the, how relationships are supposed to be, their expectations. I have seen people where they can interact with just about anybody else except this one very specific type of person, and somehow they marry that type of person. How do you fix that? I think you reduce the number of conflict conversations you have, and you, if you're like, okay, we're going to stay married, but man, we are having a hard time talking about certain topics, I think in the short run, and maybe in the long run, depending on how stubborn everybody is about uh, how, how they function in the world, maybe you just say there are certain topics that are generally speaking off limits. We're just not going to talk about them. We'll have to handle them individually. Maybe we have to approach it differently. Maybe we have to write each other a letter. Maybe we have to communicate with Morse code and uh, like a telegraph or something. Maybe you have to get unique solutions to how these messages are communicated. But you may also just have to say, let's let's leave these topics off the table. I've actually seen a number of marriages over the years get what I call saved, fully saved. They, they salvaged an exploding marriage by taking certain conversation topics off the table entirely and saying, we're just not going to talk about these. We'll have to make independent decisions of one another, or you're in charge of this, and I'm in charge of that, and we're just not going to uh, we're not going to try to overlap those decision-making processes. I've seen marriages totally salvaged by making those types of, of decisions. So sometimes you have to say to yourself, this may not be a topic I can ever talk about with this person. And I actually think that's okay. I don't believe that every marriage is required to succeed in every single area. I don't think you have to have perfect communication about every subject. I don't think you have to have a perfect spiritual synergy. I don't think you have to have a perfect physical or sexual relationship with each other in order for the marriage to work. It might be disappointing that you don't have all of those things lined up, but what are the odds that two human beings could magically just transform into a perfect blended fit that just magically matches exactly what each person needs. That's really, really unlikely. So if you let go of that need to be able to make sure you solve every problem and that you have, you are aligned perfectly, suddenly you might have a much better marriage than you actually thought, which is kind of cool right off the bat. My last thought would be, Perhaps you are trying to solve two problems at the same time when you need to be trying to solve one problem at a time. Let me show you what I mean. Sometimes you get into a conversation in which you are trying to solve a particular problem. Hey, the holidays are coming up. Your family's going to be visiting, and so is mine. And we need to try to coordinate how this is going to go between the two of us and the two families to make sure it goes well. So you're trying to solve that problem. But then things get a little heated early on in the conversation. And suddenly you're talking about a totally different second issue altogether. And that is, why do we always fight exactly like this every time we talk about this subject? And what I see couples doing is they start to 
address both issues simultaneously. The conversation is a melted, nasty mess of, well, we need to deal with the fact that the holidays are coming up and you know we're, we're only two weeks away. And also, why are you giving me that look? And the other person is saying, well, why haven't we talked about this sooner? You're always putting everything off. I've already tried to bring this up four or five times and you keep putting me off. And why is it that every time I say that, you go quiet and you just fold your arms? So you see what's happening? We're addressing two completely different issues simultaneously, which I guarantee you means that you will fail at both of them. Separate those out. You may have to have a conversation first about how can we talk about this in a way that doesn't incite panic, rage, resentment in each other? Are there things that we've done in the past that have worked well? Are there things that we could try that would make a difference for us? How can we do this in a way that doesn't push each other's buttons? And once you have come up with some solutions, then go back and attempt to have this other conversation. And as many therapists out there have recommended, if you start getting what they call flooded, or as some people say, triggered, if you start getting flooded in that conversation, that's when you need to take a break and, and say, this conversation may have to you know, happen over the course of a, a number of days, a number of sessions. We may have to take 15, 20-minute breaks because I'm just not in a place to be able to do this, and I, don't, I, I feel flooded enough that it's not likely that I'm going to respond well. If you can be self-aware enough to recognize that you're really not ready to have a certain difficult conversation, but be willing to emotionally calm down and then come back to it, that'll solve a good percentage of some of these conflict conversations. Sometimes you do end up needing to see a professional. I do spend you know, a fair amount of my marriage therapy time with people essentially rolling my chair back and forth between the two of them and saying, okay, she just said this, how would you like to respond? And then he'll say, uh, <clears throat> well, I want to say this. And I'll go, no, well, here's why that's a bad idea. <laughs> because if you do it like that, then she's going to feel and think this way. So I'm doing this sort of um, meta conversation about how the conversation is going. And we're strategizing mid-conversation. And then you know, each person is watching this strategy happening. And they're seeing that I'm essentially being, being I'm the Jiminy Cricket uh, of their of their uh, uh, marital conversations, and I'm saying let's try to do this in a way that's going to go well rather than poorly. And, I, and as bizarre as that may sound, when they watch the other person struggling and then succeeding to do a better job, even if it was with my help, at actually responding in a healthy way, uh, there's a lot of goodwill that gets built up, and uh, things tend to go better. And question number three, what is the difference between knowing what you want in a relationship and having unreasonable expectations? That's kind of wild. That question lined up with some of what I was saying in my answer to the previous question. What is the difference between knowing what you want in a relationship? And I assume we're going to add something to it, like going after what you want, being assertive about this is what I want and I would like to actually make this happen for myself, right? And having unreasonable expectations. The real core of this question is, to what extent should I push for what's important to me in the relationship? And to what extent do I need to back off and say, that's probably um, 
either more than I should be, you know, should expect from this person, or I need to have some patience. Everything can't go my way. How can you know? How can you know when you've gone too far with your expectations? This is really, really interesting. And I do see this a lot. There seems to be in every relationship one person who is perpetually disappointed in the other person, in their commitment level, in their investment in the relationship, in their desire to change, in their desire to evaluate the relationship, to work on things. And there's one person who's always disappointed that the other person is so darn pushy and can't just leave well enough alone and just enjoy the ride. And so I think that is a really common dynamic. I think it's impossible for that dynamic to not exist because there will always be one person with a greater desire to push things ahead. And there will always be one person with a greater desire to simply be in the moment and appreciate it. I actually think that's one of the coolest things about marriage or other committed relationships is that we get to see a different way of investing in the world and trying to uh, live the good life, which I think is what we are all attempting to do. I actually prefer relationships that have a wider gap between those. I think the closer you are together in terms of desire to push for issues versus, you know, be grateful for what is, I think the closer you are, the less growth opportunities there are in the relationship. So I would actually prefer to see couples where there's a nice wide gap so that each person is being forced by interacting with each other constantly to ask themselves difficult questions like, should I be pushing more? Or should I be willing to step back and just be grateful for things as they are? I think that's an important dynamic. Let's take this a different direction for a moment. Maybe a more important question than do I have unrealistic expectations of my relationship is this. Can I tolerate life if my expectations are never met? Whether they are realistic or not, you may have perfectly reasonable expectations. Let's say you're married and you believe that or you have an expectation that your spouse will put in a reasonably close to even amount of work with the household chores and that they will commit to helping manage finances together so that you're not one person spending like crazy and the other person trying to save the relationship from financial ruin, that you are expecting even levels of commitment. Let's say that you expect both people to be reasonably invested in the well-being of the other person, to sacrifice, to go out of their way. There's nobody out there, I think, that would look at those expectations and say, yeah, that's completely unrealistic, unless they're saying the average human is just terrible and uh, and you can't really expect anything out of them. But if we're talking about is it reasonable objectively, I don't think anybody would argue with that. The question you really need to be asking yourself is what if these reasonable expectations never get met? Do I have a right, a responsibility to leave the relationship, to go find one where I can have my expectations met? Is this some sort of a personal test or trial to see how well I can tolerate 
difficult situations where things sh- I should go better, but they're not? Should I grow from that? You know, what, what's, what's the correct answer here? And I think the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, if I'm unwilling to live in a world where my expectations are not met, then what does that mean about me? And I think the bad news is that it means that I have a really intense sense of potentially entitlement. Nobody gets life the way they want it. Nobody. Even the people you think who have life the way they want it. I don't think it's going as well for them as you think. We all have to deal with a certain level of disappointment and probably a high level of disappointment. I've met with many married couples who have survived together 25 to 40 years, and they universally would say that there are lots of things they're disappointed about in their relationship, but that didn't stop them from staying together. So it's not necessarily a good thing per se to have really high expectations and, you know, all I do is go through life setting boundaries so that I can get my, my way. I think that's a, a risk. It's a risk factor. I think the other important issue is allowing yourself the struggle. There's no formula to know whether or not your expectations are reasonable or whether or not your reasonable expectations that are not being met are an indicator that you should or should not end a relationship that you're in. Embrace the struggle. This is a theme of all of my therapy work. You should be willing to embrace the fact that you don't have an answer to the question. You should be willing to embrace the fact that you may never have an answer to the question. Embrace all of the paradoxes of life. Embrace the challenges where you have to struggle with a difficult question. Like, is this reasonable or am I being unreasonable? Sit in that difficult space where you have to contend with two parts of your own brain fighting it out with each other and saying, no, you need to be able to be patient with human beings, or no, you only have one life, and why would you live it miserably when you could live it better? Allow yourself that conflict. Some of the most important personal growth I have ever experienced in my life has come from allowing myself to ask myself difficult questions that I know I will not get an answer to, that I will never know what the right way is, but allowing myself to go back and forth and to confront my own biases and to challenge my own opinions and to go back and play devil's advocate against myself, those are moments where I feel like I have learned and grown more than almost any any other context in my life because it forces me to deal with two important principles that are both technically true at the same time. And in this case, that would be standing up for yourself and your values and being patient and long-suffering with the inherent messed upness of the human beings around you. If you can live in that space, you will never stop growing. Thank you, everybody, for uh, continuing to send some awesome questions for me to wrestle with. And I hope this is helpful for you. And if so, please feel free to share with others. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Mm